Hi, Kate. Hi, Jack. How are you doing? I'm so good. How are you today? I'm great. I'm extra excited today because we have our producer, George, in the room. We really do. We have a special guest. And I wish we were interviewing him. Well, we should. One day. Future. I'm sure he would is just dying for us to interview him. Are we your favorite clients? <laughs> he says yes. <laughs> How are you doing on this fine Monday morning? I'm doing well. I'm um, cautiously optimistic about today's episode. Me too. It's definitely a big one. I yeah. don't. And I think I like was having this internal dialogue this morning. We can't mess it up because it's everyone's own experience is so unique. Right. And there's no like one definition or set way that like diet culture has affected someone. Right. Yeah. I just so. want to do it as intentionally and compassionately as possible because I know that it's a very sensitive topic. Yeah. So I think with us saying this up front, we're going to issue a slight trigger warning and there will be talk of dieting, diet cultures, eating disorders, and sorts of disordered eating mentioned throughout today's episode. So if any of those things feel particularly sensitive or like things you don't want to hear about, we want to provide the opportunity to skip this episode or proceed with caution. Just, you know, Right. Mentally prepare yourself. Yeah. But some of it will be lighthearted and definitely we're just going to be sharing bits of our lives, too. So you'll get to learn a little bit more about us. Yeah. And it's extremely pertinent also because we do like we're in the fitness space. So we do encounter these topics maybe more than the normal average person would. Absolutely. So I think that also is like a huge reason why we want to talk about it. Yeah. And we did. I mean, even I threw up some polls yesterday on Instagram and in the last 24 hours, several people have come to me and said that they're glad we're talking about it and that they were surprised that it was something that was even on our radar or that we had experience with. Um, and I think that that tends to be the case too, that the perspective is if you're somebody that looks physically healthier, the perception is that you are healthy, then you must not deal with the ramifications of diet culture or have had those experiences in the past. Um, so I think it's good that we're talking about it. Me too. Yeah. I'm excited to just, you know, get in there. Yeah. Really dig deep. So to give people an idea of what we're going to talk about today, basically we will be talking about our own personal experiences and opening up a bit, um, about our histories with food, but we'll talk a little bit about the history of dieting in general, um, diet culture in the United States, the food environment that we have here, um, the impacts of crash dieting. And then we'll kind of talk a little bit about intuitive eating and mindful eating and what that can look like and how to kind of reframe your perspective on food and the choices you make related to food. However, the huge caveat here is this is informational, educational, anecdotal, and is not meant to in any way replace advice from a physician or dietitian um, or anything else. Yes. And as we all know by now, we are not scientists, doctors, dietitians, or physicians. Yeah. So there you go. Not that you needed that disclaimer, but now you have it. Yeah. Okay. Should we just dive so, into the history of it all? Let's do it. Okay, great. So although dieting is pervasive in American culture, we certainly did not invent it. No, that we owe to the Greeks. We do. The earliest evidence of dieting can be found in ancient Greek literature. And at the time, the ideal body type was muscular, lean, athletic, and male. 
And the word for dieting then actually encompassed a lot more than just food. So it focused, yes, on your, yes, on your food choices, but also on your exercise, on your general lifestyle, how you filled your time, what your habits were like day to day. And that was the first written account that we have of dieting. Um, and then obviously it kind of shifted through the years. So there was a point, obviously, during times of food scarcity, especially when having a little bit more weight on you was a sign of class and higher socioeconomic status um, because there were a lot of people that weren't able to access food. But there was a limit to that, right? Like it wasn't just that like you could be excessively overweight and you were seen as being a wealthier, high status person. There always was kind of a limit on that. I was surprised when I started, you know, digging into the history of where diets originated that I assumed kind of similar to you. It was like Olympians, athletes trying to achieve the ideal body type, but it's the first documented diet prescribed by a physician was from Hippocrates in 370 BC. And basically his notes were extremely extensive and long and wordy so I didn't write that all out because that would be insane but he found out and basically understood that the underlying principles of health were food exercise or work because then there was a lot of physical work that had to be done and that a high food intake meant that a lot of hard work was needed to be properly assimilated for the food intake so he was the first to actually write down more food equals more exercise Mm. like the relationship between calories and energy interesting that long ago so I was just kind of shocked by that I know it seems intuitive that that's what it is to us now but it's been around since like you know forever before Christ (laughs) (laughs) okay So we're going to fast forward to modern history. The first widely distributed pop diet book was in 1863. So we're talking mid 1800s. And it was written very similarly to how diet books are written today. There was a little bit of humor. Um, the, The author, it became known as the Banting Diet. Is named after him. There's a little bit of humor. There's empathy. He's promoting a healthy lifestyle. He's uh, empathizing with them and explaining that he experienced these things too. And these are the results that he saw. So it's written very closely to how diet books are today. And then from that point forward, dieting becomes a lot more prominent in pop culture. So the first time in the United States that the government gave advice regarding macronutrients. So they basically came out and said, you need to find a balance between proteins, carbs, fats, etc. That was in 1894. And then a few years later, insurance companies reported that being overweight raised the risk of death. And that started impacting insurance rates and things like that. So it's kind of exactly what you're talking about. Like, we just think it's intuitive and common knowledge that all of these things are related. We know that weight you know, can be attributed to a lot of different chronic diseases. We know that it's important for nutrients. We know that it's important for our our energy expenditure. But these weren't things that were widely known before. So kind of going through that, in 1916, the Department of Agriculture came up with the five food groups. 
around World War II, charts showing the ideal weight for height emerged. And these are actually surprisingly close to what we use today for healthy body mass index. Although BMI is definitely not the end-all be-all and isn't always the best um, measure or marker for health. And we'll definitely get to that. But you guys can see kind of a trend here from the late 1800s into the early 1900s where diet and weight loss and food become more common topics amongst Americans. So something that I definitely want to touch on that I think is extremely important is food supply. So right around the 1950s in the United States, convenient foods became a lot more prominent. So we're talking boxed food, frozen food, pre-prepped food, food in bulk. Um, and as a result, they were pulling a lot of the nutrients out of this food and then incorporating more additives to increase the shelf life. So right around the 1950s, our food supply in the United States started to shift and change. And then fast forward to the 1980s when the government started subsidizing agriculture, the cost of food went significantly down because supply was extremely high. And so the food that we were getting was cheaper. Americans started gaining weight. The quality of the food that we were eating was going down. It wasn't nearly as nutrient dense, but the caloric intake was much, much higher. And as a result, people started gaining weight. So in the 1950s, the first ever weight loss slash protein shake began to be widely distributed, and it was called Metrical. Have you seen the ads for Metrical? No, I haven't. They're crazy. Okay. So Metrical was a 225 calorie protein shake that was supposed to be, supposed to be a meal replacement. The craziest one that I saw was a plate, just a normal dinner plate, and somebody's hands with a fork and knife set up to, like, cut a piece of meat. Sure. But it was, the plate was just filled with this, like, pink liquid. Stop. And it was basically, like, meal replacement, like, quick weight loss, da 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 Sure. Magazine ad for Metrical. So it became extremely popular, and as a result, liquid diets became very popular in the 1950s. Slim Fast ended up coming out soon after. And then we've seen kind of the progression from there. Also, right around this time, televisions become very commonplace in the average American home. So from like 1945 to the mid-1950s, it went from only the wealthy elite, like maybe having one television in their home, to over half of American homes having access to TVs, commercials, television, Hollywood actors and actresses, and seeing that, like that onslaught of those images in their homes every day. Meanwhile... Our food is getting cheaper, less nutrient-dense, higher in calories. So it's really just like the media landscape and the food environment was a perfect storm for diet culture to emerge. And then in the 1960s, Weight Watchers began as a group of women that would meet once a week to just talk about weight loss and how they were losing weight and whatever, and obviously became the company that it is today and the company that I think we grew up seeing our parents, teachers, aunts, uncles, etc. on. And then the Atkins diet came out right around the same time. That was actually developed by a cardiologist. Um, and it essentially is like an extremely low carb diet. The Atkins diet is crazy. Atkins diet is crazy. Did you read about it in doing any of this? No, but I was very familiar in college. I would say I, I attempted Atkins so multiple times it was created by a cardiologist yeah and they were like one of the first big house diet companies corporate diet companies to invest in hiring psychologists to really like break down how to get as many 
participants and registrants as possible and to keep them coming back Mm -hmm. even after they fail. So that's what's the craziest thing about Atkins. It was kind of like the onset of, you know, the nooms of today where it's like, right, let's really hook them. Right. Let's not just what's going on in there. Let's not just give them this meal replacement shake. Let's also, you know, supply them with like trauma. (laughs) Great. And what's also crazy about them is they have no initiation fees and it's all free online resources. Right. But they obviously have their own brands of bars, shakes, right. meals. So their whole slogan is, is like, it's free. But then all of their participants are buying. Right. I saw this one video, like tens of thousands of dollars worth of their products. And then it so psychologically, it makes the clients feel like if they failed at this diet, it was because of them, not because of the brand. Mm, right. Just wild. And I think that's exactly why I want to talk about food supply in America before we even get to diet culture and weight loss. And I hope that talking about the food environment in which we live will help alleviate some of the shame and pressure and self-criticism that comes along with weight gain, weight loss, dieting, sticking to it, not sticking to it. I think people are extremely critical of themselves when they feel like they're not at the weight that they want to be for any number of reasons, whether it's a healthy weight or not, like whatever their perception is, people blame themselves. And in reality, of course, we have freedom of choice and and we all have different lifestyles and, and those are contributing factors. But at the end of the day, we live in an environment where food that is lacking in nutrients and extremely high in calories is cheaper and more widely accessible than the alternative. And pushed upon people. Yes. Like not only is it cheaper, it's like sometimes not even an option to not eat it. Absolutely. Schools, like all sorts of recreational centers, like they're all filled with this processed packaged food. Right. And this is even more drastic in areas of low economic status. It's even more difficult to access healthier foods in certain areas. And it really is just the fact of the matter. And I think people get into this headspace of like, why can't I do this right? Why can't I stick to this? What's wrong with me? And there's nothing wrong with you. We live in in an environment that is pushing unhealthy processed foods all of the time. It's easier to get. It's cheaper to buy. And it's absolutely natural that this kind of weight gain was experienced. And it's across the board. So from 1980 to 2000, the amount of weight gain that happened in America, in order to like account for it, people's calories had to increase by an average of, or people's caloric intake had to increase by an average of 570 calories a day. That doesn't just happen. No. That's not just another from meal. Physic- exactly. That's a whole extra meal. That doesn't just happen from extra and and overeating. It happens because your your food supply has completely shifted and changed. So anyway, like kind of talking about that. Now we have this perfect storm, right? Like people have televisions in their homes. They're seeing what like this perfect idyllic Hollywood actor or actress looks like. Magazines are more widely distributed. Fashion magazines, which I know you're going to talk about body trends, and at the same time, our food supply is completely changing. So enter diet culture. Essentially, the definition of diet culture is the collective set of social expectations telling us that there is one specific way to live and to look, 
and that we are more we are a more worthy person if our bodies look a certain way. And then everything that comes along with that, the pressures of eating in a certain way, eating certain foods, avoiding others. And this is something that all of us are susceptible to. I have some pretty wild statistics on diet culture. Do you want to hear some of them? I would love to. Okay, so I'm just going to rattle them off. Revenue has doubled since the 1990s as of 2020. And can you guess what the diet culture industry is net like worth? $60 billion. Really close. $71 billion. And this was in 2020. This was two years ago. Who knows what it's averaging at today? And nearly 45 million people go on weight loss programs every single year, even though 95% of those people, quote unquote, fail. And when I say fail, it means they either gain the weight back or they're not able to stick to the regimen. So there's obviously something happening there. Why are so many people continuously signing up, buying these meal plans, buying these cleanses, when it's almost like today a known fact that they don't work and they don't last Mm -hmm. and they're not sustainable? And I think it's important to distinguish here that there are two forms of intentional weight loss, or I guess two motivating factors. One is we do know that being over a certain weight, depending on your lifestyle and you as a specific person, can be connected to the development of chronic illnesses. And choosing to lose weight for your health, because that's what your physician has recommended to you, or based on blood panels you've done, or where your hormone levels are at, is one of these camps. And then there's another camp of weight loss strictly for aesthetics. And either you're perfectly healthy and you know that, but you want to lose weight because you want to look a certain way, or you have no idea if you're healthy, you're not looking at your blood panels, you're not paying attention to the way that you feel, but you want to look a certain way. And I think those are two very different things. And obviously, these numbers don't account for the motivating factors behind them. So we're really focusing on that second part, like losing weight for aesthetics. Although when we get to the end and are talking about mindful eating and intuitive eating, I do believe that they can be applied to either situation. And... I think it's also important to know that regardless of what your motivation is, there are healthy ways to lose weight and unhealthy ways. That's what I was going to say. Like whether it's for aesthetics or if your doctor is prescribing you to lose weight, there's a right or not right way to go about it, but there is a way that's less restrictive and detrimental to your mental health. And I think that's like the key piece is like our mental throughout the process. Right. So... Which leads us to disordered eating and eating disorders. So I definitely want to make a distinction here on these as well. So there's one um, which is eating disorders, and those are like very clearly spelled out in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, can only be diagnosed by professionals, um, and a extreme level of criteria have to you know be seen and observed in order to be diagnosed. And then there's disordered eating, which I think is far more rampant um, and oftentimes is part of or a leading cause of developing an eating disorder. And that includes diet-related behaviors that don't meet diagnostic criteria for recognized eating disorders but may still negatively affect someone's physical, mental, or emotional health. So a number of things that are like under the umbrella of disordered eating would be avoiding entire food groups altogether. So like absolutely saying, I don't eat carbs or I don't eat fat. 
um, for something that's not a medical reason. Binge eating, engaging in compensatory behaviors such as exercising to make up for the food that you've consumed, exercising compulsively, cutting food into small pieces in order to slow it down. One that I have done is like pouring, ruining your food when you still have some left because you can't stop yourself from eating it. Yep. Um, following extremely strict food rules or rituals, um, participate, participating in fad diets, etc. The list goes on. So um, our generation, I think millennials and then even like older Gen Z, was one of the first to witness what generational dieting does because a lot of these diets became household fads when we were children, we witnessed the people that we looked to for advice and understanding of our health and our bodies do Weight Watchers or do Atkins or do whatever number of these. Like we witnessed it firsthand from our parents, our teachers, our aunts and uncles. And then we grew up in an era where the media was even more easily accessible to us, where the food was less healthy and higher in calories. And so we really are the first to kind of see these generational effects of dieting. Yeah. And I've heard some people argue that like, oh, well, Gen X, which is like our parents' generation, like went through the same thing. Like they they had televisions, like they were watching it too. But I think like what's acutely different for millennials and older gen z is that we now have these portals in our pockets that show us exactly what all of these people are eating every single day and we're constantly being infiltrated with edited images and that is not something that our parents and teachers and mentors had to deal with Mm -hmm. and that's just a fact yeah like it is so readily accessible and infiltrative that you almost unless you decide to not have social media cannot avoid it right this is a crazy statistic one study reported that girls at the age of 13 53 percent of american girls at the age of 13 said that they were unhappy with their bodies and you were saying talking about the polls that you put on our instagram that was like i think the second most popular yeah option was like 13 to 18 was when they started noticing their body and like adjusting their food Mm -hmm. to affect that, which is mind blowing. Like that's a child. Yeah. That's a baby. Yeah. I mean, can you remember the first time you were aware of your body shape? Yes, I can. It's well, I grew up in Newport beach. So like constantly at the beach bathing suits, like in the winter, spring, summer, fall, like you're never really bundled up or like hiding your body like your body is almost like an accessory to where you live when you're here which is its own issue in itself growing up here but like junior guards you're in a bathing suit and you're in these super awkwardly length shorts and you're wearing like the most like you're wearing like men's clothes almost and I just remember being like my body does not look good in this like these shorts are hitting me at the weirdest place possible. Like I feel so uncomfortable in this. And it was my whole summer. How old were you? I was nine. Wow. I was a D. 
It was the only year I did it. I had to do it. My mom made me. Mm. <laughs> for swimming purpose, for safety purposes. For safety purposes. But, and then you're also on top of that, being in clothes that you're not choosing and that hit you or feel uncomfortable on your body. You're also surrounded by other 9, 10, 11 year old girls and you're comparing yourself. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I was comparing myself, but I was. Yeah. And then ever since then, it's like never really been something I've been unaware of. Right. I was about the same age. I remember it because I remember my school had like a rule about how long our shorts were allowed to be. Oh, yeah. Um, And I remember realizing that same exact thing that like where shorts hit me where I was allowed to wear them. I felt like and I was nine ish. I felt like I looked really heavy. And I remember being so self-conscious about it. And I, like, didn't want to wear shorts at all because of it. And then I started noticing, like, I played softball at the time. And I started noticing that my body looked different than other girls. And I started developing at a much younger age. And so it was, like, really apparent to me. And that was about the time that I started paying attention to what I was eating. And then a few years later, I experienced pretty significant weight gain. And my parents like couldn't figure out what it was from. I was dancing. I was playing softball. They saw what I was eating all the time. Um, but what they didn't know, and I may, have, may or may not have talked about this on the podcast before, is that my grandparents would pick me up from school. And my brother went to a different school down the street, and he got out like 25 to 30 minutes after me. And they would bring me like a cooler of snacks, like a full cooler for me multiple sodas yes hot cheetos slim gyms and i would sit there for 25 to 30 minutes and just gorge myself and i gained a lot of weight very rapidly and i was very very aware of it and i don't think my parents made it obvious to me like i think they were really great about that and and were very intentional with what they said or didn't say but they've since told me that they were concerned about it at the time and like asked the doctor what was going on and whatever but I was just aware of it and I remember um this time that I was experiencing all of this weight gain I also was starting to get really bad migraines likely related to my food intake and sugar intake and everything else um and so I was a about 12 the first time I had like eaten a lot that day I ended up getting a migraine later um obviously not like immediate causation but had a migraine later and I ended up throwing up from the migraine and from that pain and that was the first time I experienced oh after I throw up I feel skinny and I I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder I um actually never told my parents about this but from that point forward I experienced to varying degrees disordered eating and purging after overeating and it wasn't something ever for me that was like compulsive or chronic like it wasn't every single day it really was times when I overate and I felt excessively full I was like you know what I'm just gonna go ahead right Cause, and then once you do it once, you're like, I have this in like my arsenal. Exactly. I don't need to like access it every day. Right. But I know I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I experienced that from varying degrees, basically through college, um, I think is the last time I can remember purposely purging. Um, and also like experienced other types of disordered eating throughout high school, under eating in college, I would literally have like a slice of Ezekiel bread with peanut butter 
in a day and work out and like be running around Pepperdine's campus, which if you've ever been there is like a like workout a in and of itself. <laughs> um, and, and I would say honestly, even up to before my wedding, like in the months prior to my wedding, I was basically having a perfect bar and like a meal a day. That is something that's so, so, so common though. Brides, like, have you heard of shredding for the wedding? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's like rampant. It's almost like a rite of passage. Like, oh, you're getting married? Get the skinniest you've ever been. Right. And like, where's the logic there? No. And the even person at you're the marrying time, fell in love with you. Right. As you were. Yeah. And now you're just memorialized in this version of yourself that you're forever going to like kick yourself for, for not being able to obtain again. Mm -hmm. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. And that, and for me, like I look back on that and I have guilt about it beyond just what I did to myself. But like I owned a gym at the time, like I'm a fit, I work in the fitness space and I was doing something that I knew was not good for my body and not good for my health. And I was choosing to engage in that kind of activity. But it, it's so hard to undo years of thinking and beliefs about yourself. And obviously, like everything that we've talked about, like the food supply that we're dealing with, the media that we're dealing with and everything else. And I remember like I got mono really, really bad in high school and I was hospitalized for a while and I came out of there so, so thin and it, I was like so weak. My best friend at the time like had to give me a bath when I got home because I like couldn't even stand up in the shower. And the months that followed that of me trying to maintain that weight when I knew I was so unhealthy. You couldn't stand up. I couldn't stand up in the shower. And when I started gaining that weight back as I should have, as I needed to, I was on a, a literal liquid diet for days in the hospital the pressure that I put on myself to maintain that weight once I got out, I think from really that's when it was at its worst and then into college. And then I didn't experience it for a long time. And then prior to the wedding, but I think, you know, it's something that now I know is, is going to be in my mind forever. I think. Yeah. That's so unfortunate just to kind of go back a little bit that you were exposed to it at such a young age because those are the most like your brain is so malleable in those years and those are when you're building your morals and your beliefs and they're really setting in and it's just so like you are not an anomaly like not at all not that at all is what's basically happening to nine and ten year old girls like as they're going through puberty and as they're experiencing you know body changes and I was lucky enough to actually like I skated through middle school I was like oh what like body issues not me and then I my first so I told you like when I was I had the opposite of you actually I was like the later side to developing so I was like if anything more subcon like self-conscious for being smaller well it's interesting because you grew up in a time where like curves were in Yes. Like you were kind of in that like middle school, high school era where like curves were becoming trendy. So if you didn't have them, now that's a problem. Whereas before, precisely, if you did, precisely. that's a problem. Yeah. Like you were in like the low rise, like Paris Hilton. Yes. 
six tank tops on <laughs> one micro mini skirt. It's like, this is the only way you can look. I'm so sorry. Right. But yeah, I was in the like the hourglass, like big old butt, mm-hmm. big old boobs. You know, that was the vibe. And then I actually went to call. I was like pretty fine. I actually started weight training in I think the summer before I went to college and I experienced like I was never a bigger person, but I experienced like a pretty dramatic weight loss from weight training because I'd never lifted weights in my life. And then I think that just increased my metabolism Mm -hmm. and I like lost a significant amount of weight. And then I felt like that same pressure when I got to school. I was also like completely out of my routine. I was in a different state. I experienced some loss that year. And I was just like, well, the one thing I can control is what I eat. Mm -hmm. And I, like most of my days in the dorm, like would wake up, I would have like those little cups of oatmeal that you put in the microwave. And then I would like try not to eat till dinner. And I really maintained that for like two full years. Wow. And it was crazy. Yeah. And like people, of course, in my life, like, noticed and like would mention it but then also in that time I although veganism isn't a fad diet I (laughs) was a vegan and that was like kind of my excuse Mm. and I really like leaned on that when I would go out to dinner and be like can't eat that it's not vegan it's not vegan can't Mm -hmm. eat it sorry right and I think that took a long time for me to let go of and like if anyone has ever been either like a vegan or a vegetarian you know like when you stop eating that way there's a lot of guilt that comes with that also because it's like I once didn't eat meats and cheese and it's so many food groups that you have to reintroduce and it's a lot Mm -hmm. so luckily I now eat all the meats and cheeses (laughs) (laughs) but it took a long time to be comfortable with that and there's still people today that like are like, oh, you're eating that? And I'm like, yes. Yeah. I'm not a vegan anymore. Right. Even though I literally haven't been for three and a half years. Mm-hmm. But still, it's it really sticks with you. And like, although it's a lifelong thing, you can also like implement things in your life that help. Yeah. And be around people and environments that make it easier. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge like step that I took that really really changed my life that's great thank you yeah and kind of on that note I think you know kind of shifting your perspective on food to see it as fuel can be really helpful um and truthfully the thing about the diet industry that's so frustrating to me is that although it is not easy to lose weight it is actually quite simple Barring any major hormonal issues, health issues, thyroid issues that complicate it. Like, obviously, everybody's situation is very different. And in those cases, things become exceedingly less simple. Um, But if we're talking, you know, standard about healthy eating, it does not have to be complicated. It certainly should not come in the form of packaged foods. Um, And really, you know, minimizing processed foods focusing on eating as many whole foods as possible, managing your sugar intake and staying active. It really can be that simple for the vast majority of people. Again, there are, of course, circumstances in which things become more complicated. 
Um, and so, you know, one thing that I'm definitely seeing come up a lot more and that I've been trying to be intentional about, um, is intuitive eating. And so intuitive eating does have a really kind of specific framework. It was invented in the 90s by two registered dietitians, Evelyn Tripoli and Elise Resch, and they wrote a book about intuitive eating. Um, They have 10 very clear principles and kind of walk you through a lot of that. And when I say intuitive eating, some people think, oh, just like eat whatever you want, whenever you want. Yeah. That's like the most common trope is like, oh, so you're like on the eat it all diet. Right. Which is not the case. It's like, no. Yeah. So things that intuitive eating is not. Number one, it's not a diet at all. Exactly. Number two, it is not eating whatever you want whenever you want. Intuitive eating is basically pausing to think about the food choices that you're making beyond the initial impulse of just wanting it. Um, It's making decisions that are considerate of not only your satisfaction and your enjoyment, but also your well-being and your physical and emotional feelings. And I think most importantly, it's attuning to your body to be able to feel the differences between biological hunger, taste hunger, practical hunger, emotional hunger, and kind of knowing what choices to make depending on what the circumstances are. I think just to tie it back to what we were talking about, how it is kind of, it feels like a lifelong mental challenge. Mm-hmm. And the the questions and the principles that the authors of the intuitive eating book have like implemented are a really, really great exercise for those of us that had the years of like mental, just repetition of saying like, don't eat that. Don't eat that. You're not hungry. You basically train yourself to like, think I'm not hungry. Right. And it's really hard to tap back into your hunger cues. Yes. And also it's important to say that like this goes the other way too. Like just because it's 8, 12 and 5 PM doesn't mean you have to have a meal at every one of those hours. Right. Like that's also an implemented standard in the U S like you have to really, really tap into your internal being. Yeah. And I think it takes a lot of practice. And what's interesting is we're born knowing that, right? (laughs) Like as babies, we know when we're hungry yeah, and we know when we're satisfied. Or like as small children, like your parents ask you, like, do you want a snack? Yeah. And you sometimes said no. Right. And you were fine with that. Right. You weren't. Or hungry. you would stop eating when you were full. And sometimes your parents made you finish. That is something that I was so fortunate to grow up around was like my mom never said, like, finish your plate. I don't have children. And so I try really hard to, like, not criticize anybody on how they choose to raise their children my personal experience with that was yeah then like for years I mean it's honestly been in the last couple of years very recently that I've been like I don't have to finish it I actually don't have to no and I still have to fight that urge but intuitive eating is helpful with that so like intuitive eating encompasses a lot of different things number one like it's shifting your perspective on food like seeing calorie as a source or seeing calories as a source of energy not a number that you have to like make up for or fight with um it's avoiding obsessions over numbers like your weight or your bmi because those aren't always positive biomarkers of health and ultimately that's where your weight should be is where you're at your healthiest um And also like kind of on a note of like exercising, obviously you and I feel very strongly about exercise. However, it's kind of a poor weight loss tool. Like when you really think about it, if you're not changing your nutrition, exercise is a poor weight loss tool. That doesn't mean don't do it. 
It's one of the only things that will tangibly improve biomarkers for health, even if you don't lose weight. It improves your insulin sensitivity. It improves inflammation, health span, lifespan, bone density, cardiovascular health. Um, And studies have actually found kind of on that note of hunger and like attuning with your body, they found that people that exercise are more sensitive to satiety and hunger signals than other people. So it's better at like indicating from your body to your brain, hey, I'm hungry. Hey, I'm satisfied. Yeah. And on that note of the brain cues, there's significant long-term effects to chronic dieting. And this aggressive dieting lowers the base metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. So basically what that means is the less you eat and the more you restrict or the more you depend on these diets where they're prescribing you meal replacement shakes or meal replacement bars, you're actually burning less energy when you're resting. So if you were to eat to satiety and eat till you're full, eat when you're hungry, listen to your actual hunger cues your base metabolic rate will be higher at a resting state. And that's huge, especially especially if healthy weight loss is the goal. You want a healthy metabolism. Right. Your basal metabolic rate is like 50 to 70% of your calorie burn. Precisely. That's without a physical, that's without walking upstairs. Yes. That it's literally just your body's natural cycles. Exactly. And I feel like that is what is almost like the missing piece and these people's like mental decision process, when you sign up for these diet plans, it's actually hurting what might be the most useful tool in weight loss. So yeah, that's kind of like a major missing puzzle piece to it all. Right. And I think the key really is connecting with your body and learning to respond to those signals appropriately. So Intuitive eating has kind of like shape-shifted over time, but there are 10 key principles that I'm going to go through super quickly. The first is to reject the diet mentality. So rejecting notions of fast weight loss, getting angry at diet culture, being so upset about all of this, honoring your hunger. So providing your body with adequate energy, carbohydrates, and not allowing yourself to become excessively hungry. Making peace with food, getting rid of the mentality that there are good foods or bad foods that you absolutely can never have or should always have challenging the food police and this is not the food police around you this is like deep internal psyche that tells you don't eat that you're bad for eating that or yes good job only eat that Um, respecting and feeling your fullness so this is huge attuning to your body and listening for signals that you are no longer hungry the law of diminishing returns is true of food if you're no longer enjoying what you're putting in your mouth the way that you did when you first started take a moment pause maybe you're full maybe your body is satisfied Discovering the satisfaction factor connected to that. So allowing yourself to enjoy food and choosing the foods that you do enjoy. Honoring your feelings without using food. So noticing when you're feeling bored, anxious, lonely, and turning to food to deal with those things. Respecting your body. um, So accepting your genetic blueprint. You and I were just talking about this the other day. Like there's all these influencers on our feed that are five foot ten and extremely thin and long and lean. And I simply am never going to look like that. And I need to accept Never. that I am five foot two and built differently. And I, c- I could never shove my six and a half size foot into a size four shoe. I'm not going to try to make my body look completely different than I know it ever can or will. Right. Um, that ex- one's tough. That one's tough. 
exercising and feeling the difference. So when exercising, not focusing on the calorie burn or what you're making up for, but focusing on the feeling that you get when you exercise. Um, and then honoring your health, making food choices that honor your health. Um, and you don't have to eat perfectly in order to be healthy. And we want to acknowledge like, this is extremely difficult. Like extremely, we are not saying like, just do this and it'll all get better. Like in, there might not even be a day where like, I'm able to fully complete every single one of those questions and be like, yep. Yep. Done. Yeah. But it is extremely helpful and a great resource to have in the back of your mind. Right. As like a sounding board. Yeah. To hopefully negate some of those negative feelings that people can associate when they're eating when they're about to eat. Right. So, and asking yourself the right questions, like, am I eating out of habit or out of hunger? Am I eating cause it's noon and everybody else is maybe I had a big breakfast and I don't need it. Yeah. Am I eating for nurture or am I eating for nutrition? Am I eating because I'm anxious and I just like need something or I'm bored? What else could, f- if it's a feeling, what else could fulfill that? If anything, would going for a walk be helpful? Would calling my mom or my best friend be helpful? Yeah. And sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is like, no, I just want some fucking ice cream and to watch Gilmore Girls and leave me alone. And that's, all- and that's healthy fine. also. <laughs> like that is really, that's a form of listening to your body too. Exactly. So yeah just try your best it's all hard yes i'm gonna wrap this up super quickly with some mindful eating tips how to eat mindfully oh this is good i need these great number one eating without distraction Mm -hmm. don't be on your phone don't be watching tv obviously like socializing and eating is a part of our lives so not so much that but still be intentional while you're doing that don't distract yourself with something else what i literally (laughs) I can't start eating until I have like the perfect show queued up. Mm. Like I even get mad at Gerardo sometimes because like I'm sitting waiting on the couch and like I have our dinners on the table. Right. Which is probably not good that we eat on the couch. We too eat on the couch. Okay. So (laughs) there's that. And I'll be like, come on. He'll be like cleaning up something or like on the phone. And I'm like, I I can't not press play until (laughs) we start eating. (laughs) But that might just be like my own personal thing. I'll try to work through that. Okay, great. Um, listening to physical hunger cues before they get to headaches and fatigue. You should never get to headaches and fatigue. You should feel it in your stomach, like an emptiness in your stomach and notice that and make the right choice. Also notice when you're full, notice when food is having a diminishing return on enjoyment, distinguishing between the hunger and non-hunger triggers for eating and noticing the effects of food on your body and emotions afterwards. This is one I wish I had done many a years ago when I was eating nothing but fast food and I felt like shit all of the time. And I just thought that that was the natural state of being when in reality it was the Miguel's burrito that I had for lunch. Yeah, it's tough. I have a hard time with this one also because I do believe that I have a gluten sensitivity (laughs) and I completely ignore it. Mm. And the next day, like I, I am puffy and even once I had like a pretty severe allergic eye reaction and the only thing I could link it to was my excessive amount of gluten I'd eaten the day prior, but I still do it. And I think with moderation, I'm actually lucky enough to like skate by and like kind of sneak it in sometimes. Mm-hmm. But that is one that I, I'm focused on really like trying to adhere to because I think it would really help me. Yeah. So, <laughs> but obviously... These mental cues are all helpful, as we've said. 
but there is unfortunately still the media component piece that we act for most people's jobs now also it's extremely helpful to be on social media so it's a double-edged sword where you feel the need to have a presence on there and be up to date on the quote-unquote trends but with that comes an onslaught of what I eat in a day's dieting mm-hmm. advice from non-registered dietitians and also just photos of, like you said, these girls that are just 5'10", extremely slender, beautiful, and you're, you cannot help but compare yourself to them. You can restrict ads on weight loss on Instagram. Whoa. You can go to settings, ads, ad topics. And there's a diet and weight loss one. And you can restrict the number of ads that you get. Oh, I just mute my ads for 30 days at a time. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. You could do that too. Recently. And of course, like the media has played a huge part of diet culture since the early 1900s. So this is nothing new. But there was an article that was released in November of 2022. And the title of the article was... Bye-bye booty. Heroin chic is back. And this was posted by the New York Post. I mean. I know, but it's not like some girl is like on her blog saying like heroin chic is back. This is like a real publication that's deciding to, A, like, why are we bringing drug addiction into this? That's not necessary. And calling it chic. And calling it chic. Mm. It's extremely confusing to me, but that aside isn't exactly what I wanted to talk about. I just wanted to quickly say that our bodies are not trends, okay? Really let that sink in. And this is something that I've had to learn brutally throughout my adolescence and upbringing. Like you said, you would never try to fit the shoe that is not your size onto your foot. And of course, there's cosmetic procedures. And if it makes you genuinely feel more confident in your body and in yourself, of course, do what's safe and talk to a practitioner, all of that. But we cannot shape shift and morph our bodies every five years to fit what the Kardashians are doing. That's just not feasible. And that's also so detrimental for our mental health. I cannot even begin to say what that will do. And if you're a woman and you plan to have maybe children of your own to let them watch you try and make your body malleable when it is not so to wrap up the episode I just wanted to remind everyone you are in this vessel for life it is what brings you up the stairs it is what takes you to work it is what hugs your family members it is simply the sack that holds your soul. Why do I keep calling our sacks? I said this last episode. I said we're water sacks. (laughs) We are. We're just sacks. I need a better word for it. It's okay. Anyways, that was beautiful. And I don't normally like preach to people. Like I'm not on some high horse. I'm not saying this from like a place of like, I've, I've seen the light and I'm here to share it with you. I'm just saying that my goal, if anything, with this episode is just to let people take a deep breath and relax a little bit and And know that they're not alone and remember that this is a system that was set up for them to fail so it's not your fault it's no one's fault your body is not a trend yeah and and hopefully if anything comes of this it's that 
you really aren't alone in any of this. Um, and the pressure is real and the difficulty is real and it's a lifelong journey that a lot of us are on. True. All right. And we'll see you next week. Bye.